This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate change believers and deniers alike find it hard to understand how others can think differently. But according to psychologist Renee Lertzman, we humans have an amazing capacity to stretch our minds to accommodate our own beliefs. When we're confronted with information that brings up conflict with uh, our beliefs, our worldview, our ideology, whatever, our mind will actually generate incredible strategies to deny, repress, and basically avoid the reality. But climate avoidance is more than just a psychological problem. You've got to solve the psychological problem to solve the political problem, but the political problem has just leapt way ahead of the psychology here, and we are now in a horrible place. Is climate denial destroying our planet? Up next on Climate One. Do you believe in climate denial? Welcome to Climate One changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. The scientific consensus is that human activity is cooking the planet. Yet many people persist in believing that climate change is a hoax. Vilifying others for not agreeing with us doesn't help. Nor does getting into heated arguments at family dinners. Can better communication and maybe a dash of humor help us find common ground? On today's program, Greg Dalton welcomes four experts on the psychological and political reasoning behind climate denial. Renee Lertzman is a psychologist and author whose work focuses on climate awareness. Christine Russell is a veteran science journalist. Her work has appeared in Scientific American, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. Michael Mann is Distinguished Professor of Meteorology at Penn State University. He was recently awarded the 2017 Stephen Schneider Award, presented by Climate One for Outstanding Climate Communication. And Tom Tolles is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist for The Washington Post. He and Mann are co-authors of The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, destroying our politics, and driving us crazy. Delving into the psychology of climate denial on today's Climate One. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Welcome to all of you. I want to begin by uh, playing a clip. We went out and found a climate denier. We figured we wouldn't have a whole lot of them, that perspective, on stage in the audience today. So we wanted to be sure that that was heard. So we went out to a grocery (coughs) store in Richmond, California, and we found David Ehrlich, who is a um, chair of the Republican Party in Alameda County. Let's hear what David Ehrlich has to say. My name is David Ehrlich. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, California, but I currently live in um, San Leandro. I'm an electrician by trade, and I am the current uh, chairman of the Alameda County Republican Party. When I was in junior high school, the big thing is we're all going to freeze to death because there's a hole in the ozone layer. We can't use aerosol sprays anymore. I remember my mom was a big hair hair gal in the 80s, and uh, she liked her hairspray, and she thought it was going to be taken away. (laughs) That seems to be forgotten about. We've gone from it's going to freeze us all to death to, to global warming, to now it's climate change. Carbon tax is being implemented because of it. It's, 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 it's not right. It's not right. I'm not saying that there isn't climate change. There is climate change, because if you go with the definition of climate change, the climate has changed from this morning to this evening. 
Um, it depends on what scale you want to look at it at. If we're looking at coming out of the ice age and now we're warming, that's where we're at. Um, so that would be a natural progression. I don't really believe there's 99% of the scientists and what class of scientists. Most of the uh, meteorologists I know don't uh, subscribe to the uh, type of global warming that uh, we, we've been told we're involved in. We need to be working on alternative energies, period, because not just not just because of any damage we can do to the climate or, or any damage we can do to the earth, change the climate, because it's, it's uh, economically right, it's, it's advancement. Really, uh, what we're looking at is economics, because we're looking at a financial disaster that'll do, do us in quicker than any global warming at this point in time. That's David Ehrlich, electrician, who we talked to in Richmond, California. He's chair of the Alameda <coughs> County Republican Party. Uh, and we sent the journalist Andrew Stelzer out there to talk to him. Uh, Michael Mann, there's a lot in there. Um, unpack some of that, that first of all, climate and weather is a difference there. But what do you, how do you respond to his views, which represent a lot of what we hear in the climate debate? Yeah. How long do we have here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I think it's, it's easy to, to vilify somebody like that. It would be easy to, to, for us to laugh at, uh, you know, some of the, uh, well, some of the ignorance that is betrayed um, in that segment. Um, but to me, uh, he's an example of, you know, uh, someone who's really a victim. Uh, I, he's not the enemy. Um, he's a victim of a, a massive misinformation campaign that we're, we're fighting constantly when it comes to the science of climate change. And you, you can hear that in the litany of talking points because he's essentially delivering standard sort of climate change, contrarian climate change denial talking points. So I, I think what's also important to understand just in the logical progression is that those talking points were really just a way to justify an ideological position. And in the end, you saw where he was coming from. There's a quote uh, that I love um, attributed to uh, James Inhofe, uh, a very well-known uh, Senate climate change denier from Oklahoma. And uh, he once said something uh, to this effect. He said, I used to believe the science of climate change until I learned how much it would cost. And I, th I think that statement really betrays sort of the underlying mental process that's at work. And I'm sure Renee can shed some additional light on that. So uh, I, I think it's important to understand that in the end, this person comes out on the right side of the issue. And maybe there's some internal conflict. Maybe he, he ultimately understands that there is a problem here. He doesn't want to explicitly mention it because, you know, climate change is sort of for the tribe that uh, he belongs to. It, it's um, ideologically inappropriate to, to concede that climate change is real. But in his heart, he sort of knows that it is. And he knows the right thing is to move in the direction of clean energy. And he's actually helping in that effort. So. Renee Lertzman, uh, I mean, I made the question of whether the science is even relevant. He's installing LED lights, right? right. Who cares what he thinks about the science, right? Yeah. He's doing, he's installing clean energy. Science is complicated. It's abstract. Yeah. Do we focus too much on the science? And is it more emotional things that people respond to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that uh, example illustrates how incredibly complicated this is, but more so that as humans, we're capable of tolerating and managing a lot of contradictions in ourselves and in one another. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, I, what I'm reminded of in seeing that clip and in Mike's comments is um, when we're confronted with information that brings up uh, conflict with uh, our beliefs, our worldview, our... Um, 
you know, ideology, whatever, um, our mind will actually generate incredible strategies to deny, repress, and basically avoid uh, our engagement with the situation and with the reality. That's just, that's just um, neurologically, neuro, you know, from a neuroscientific perspective, that's what our minds do. When conflict is introduced, our, our neural networks are activated, and we actually do seek out uh, scenarios that help us stay in alignment with a worldview. Um, and I would, I would add that I think the reason why the messages and the discourse have efficacy and land with people is precisely because there's an incredible difficulty in coming to terms with what's happening. So, you know, I'm also reminded in interviews I've done with Republicans around climate change, hardcore skeptics, that we see exactly what we're talking about and what Mike was mentioning is a lot of vacillation between a recognition and acknowledgement. Somehow you kind of know that they know deep down that something's up, but they can't allow themselves to go there because of my, you know, identity, affiliation. It doesn't feel safe or acceptable to do that. Our job is to try to make it more safe, to make it, to, to give one another permission to actually go there. Christine Russell, has the media done a good job doing that? Well, first of all, the media is a plural word, <laughs> and so I, I think uh, I, I've seen a, a number of nostalgia pieces recently. Remember the good old days of Walter Cronkite, where that's the way it is, and I think people, particularly in this post-election period, are really realizing that, again, a lot of the polarization and the kind of thoughts that we were hearing in that uh, view of the climate denier is because people are getting their information from so many different sources. And so one of our problems, if you're in mainstream news media, is getting people the information, and people are still getting a lot of information from television, but they're also getting it from selected sources of information that reinforce what they think to start with. And so we don't have that collective wisdom, and I think one of the challenges for science, for journalism, uh, for any field is how do you get a better, uh, more educated audience on some of these areas of science. And back to the point you made, I don't think people have to be scientists. And looking at the conversation he was having as the electrician about his beliefs as if somehow he could sort out the science. And so we've lost some trust. And I think the news media um, has also lost a certain amount of trust in people are blaming the media, and certainly in this uh, election campaign, uh, particularly on the Republican side, uh, the media is as much a target as everybody else. And so uh, we, I think, in, in the news media in mainstream uh, journalism really have a challenge to try to reach out in a bigger pond and reach other people than uh, just uh, preaching to the converted. So. I think we really have a challenge, and I think we're going to have a lot to cover in the coming months, that's for sure. Tom Tolles, humor gets to a deeper level, perhaps get to that emotional level. So how do you approach climate change and the cartoons that you've done in the book? Well, um, my answer will fold back into some of the previous uh, video, too. Um, 
I mean, we were just talking about has the news media been helpful in this, and I would say that over the last 30 years on this topic, and I agree the media is a plural, but I think in, over the last 30 years the, the media has been in the aggregate essentially abysmal at covering the climate issue, uh, both in terms of the way they uh, defaulted into the easy formula of both sides. That's one problem. The other problem is not taking the uh, uh, enormity of the problem seriously at all and relegating it as kind of a side uh, issue, a page six issue. The, the, the analogy, I mean, cartoonists think in visual terms, but the analogy is this is an asteroid coming at Earth, and you know everybody says, oh, well, what if an asteroid hits us someday? This is essentially the same thing. The science of the matter is very clear now. We can see that asteroid growing in the sky every day, and we're confronted with a news media that uh, for some reason doesn't care to cover the story of the asteroid that's going to hit us particularly. Um, and they, when they do cover it, they cover it, have covered it. It's getting a little better now, but they've covered it. Uh, well, we're going we're gonna, to uh, talk to a scientist that explains that the asteroid is this size, and when it hits the Earth in this place, it's going to do this amount of damage. You can measure and, and calculate this, and then we're going to talk to an electrician uh, who works <laughs> who works for uh, the Republican Party, and ask him if he thinks that the asteroid is, is there, uh, <laughs> or whether it's similar or different to other astero asteroids that may or may not have been there, or rumors of asteroids, or <laughs> mythological animals. Um, <laughs> Renee Lerzman, in all fairness, that gentleman who spoke to uh, our reporter isn't here to defend himself, and it may get laughs, but is it right to villainize people like that? Right. So, no, I think we're all in agreement on that point. I just want to um, follow on Tom's comment about the asteroid. So I will, I will actually um, clarify the difference between an asteroid and climate change is that an asteroid is external to us. And climate change, we're all living within the systems that are producing the issue. And that is what makes it fundamentally a profound psychological and social quandary and dilemma. Because we will, as humans, deny and defend um, till the bitter end if we feel that um, and, and one of the things that came up in the video is loss. So his mother was afraid that something that she's attached to is going to be taken away. That's going on at a collective social level. And I think humor is, is one of our most powerful um, resources for effectively disarming the human defense mechanisms. I mean, Freud knew this. Many psychotherapists know this, that humor, humor can be very disarming in addition to other... Uh, mechanisms, other strategies that help disarm, and that includes the ability to say, look, you know, this is scary, this is maybe feels overwhelming, it, I don't want this to be true as well, so show some empathy. I mean, God knows I wish this wasn't true, but it is, and that's why we all, you know, so you move on from there. We're talking about the many layers of climate denial here at Climate One. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org.
This is Climate One. We're talking about how to deal with climate denial. Our guests are Michael Mann, professor of meteorology at Penn State University, editorial cartoonist and author Tom Tolles, science journalist Christine Russell, and psychologist Renee Lertzman. Let's continue our discussion. Here's Greg Dalton. Mike Mann, I'd like to ask you about uh, a real legitimate villain, perhaps. Uh, Frederick Seitz uh, was former president of the National Academy of Sciences, president of Rockefeller University, won many awards. Um, and he, you write in your book, uh, The Madhouse Effect, is a founding figure in the art of modern day science denialism. So tell us how such a distinguished figure kind of went to the dark side. Yeah, you know, I have some personal connections with Seitz in, in, in a sense. Uh, he was a solid earth physicist, um, uh, a very distinguished, sol- uh, uh, sorry, a, not a solid earth, a, uh, um, a solid state, a solid state <laughs> physicist. Flat um, earth. But <laughs> <laughs> so studying how materials work, and, and that's where I got my start in, in physics as well at UC Berkeley. Um, I was studying in, in that area. Um, and ultimately, uh, he became uh, president of the Rockefeller Institute, um, a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He actually became president of the National Academy of Sciences. So when people say, you know, well, um, how is it that you know, somebody that smart cannot get it, cannot get the science of climate change. It's not a matter of intelligence. I think we have to recognize that. Um, there are ideological uh, you know, issues at work. And in his case, um, he actually ended up receiving, I think, something like $70 million from uh, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco to found an institute uh, whose primary function would be to attack the science linking tobacco and human health. Um, and there's a famous uh, saying uh, attributed to um, uh, uh, Upton Sinclair. Uh, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. Um, and so I think we have to recognize that there is denialism that comes from exactly the place that Renee is describing. Uh, there are various strains of denialism. Uh, some of it comes from... Uh, you know, a, a self-interested <laughs> uh, sort of uh, origin as well. Um, and uh, I, I think in some sense, that's the more challenging uh, denialism to access and maybe uh, convert and turn around uh, because it's so self-interested and it's so tied to ideology. I don't think any amount of um, information was going to convince uh, the president, a former president of the National Academy of Sciences, that he was wrong uh, about this science. Uh, I think he was absolutely convinced that he was right, and he was convinced that he was doing the right thing from a political standpoint. Um, I think that's a harder nut to crack. I think it's uh, part of what we face, the fact that uh, climate change denialism, that people like the electrician that we're talking about, uh, as I said before, I see him as a victim of a campaign, a massive disinformation campaign. The same interests, some of the same talking heads who were working for the tobacco industry decades ago, denying the connection between tobacco and climate change, are today receiving money from fossil fuel interests to undermine the public's understanding and, and policymakers' understanding of uh, the science of climate change. Uh, and that's, that, that is, uh, 
Well, suffice it to say that those people, to some extent, were operating in the shadows. Um, given the latest round of uh, nominations uh, for various uh, departments in our presidency, um, those people may now be controlling the reins of government. Um, and that's something we haven't seen before. Tom Tolles, you're going to have a lot of fun the next four years. Um, only if you find uh, describing the uh, imminent decline and destruction of the planet, the ecosystems, the economic base, the political base, and uh, pretty much everything that we've come to depend on and love about the planet and our way of life and our fellow man. If, we, if, if you can enjoy the process of watching the dissolution and destruction of all of that, I'd be having a great time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I agree with Renee, and I mean, climate has been described as the political policy problem from hell, and uh, the, the recent research on the way the brain functions, the way it has evolved as a many-tracking system, some of which, some of the tracks are, are rational, some are instinctual, some of them are selfish, some of them are social, um, that is the fundamental base on which this issue has fallen in that it's abstract. It asks for sacrifices now for a, 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 a vague threat later. And all of that is true. Um, this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, almost every uh, environmental issue has played into this uh, a psychological trap to a certain extent. I think the, uh, the electrician's referencing to the uh, ozone hole was probably the most directly applicable, although he didn't seem to know, understand the difference between that and the climate issue. But there again, it was aerosols are going to do something. We have to change the, the product that we're familiar with, comfortable with, economically uh, secure with, to fix a problem that is described as uh, molecular interaction that is destroying something that a layer that no one had ever heard of before that was going to cause cancer. That was also a problem very much like this, only on a, some ways a smaller scale, although that was also globally a fairly significant one. But the fact of the matter is we did solve it. Human beings can solve this. The climate problem is the same psychological problem. I'm sorry for going on just a little. I'll finish in a second. The psychological problem is there, but you take away the specific, directed, focused, uh, targeted misinformation campaign from the fossil fuel industry, this problem would look entirely different. The public opinion, had, even the, the opinion within the Republican Party, uh, and I'm, I use that as a, as, a, as a generic, not necessarily always in every case, every Republican, but even the pos positions and policies within the Republican Party were starting to come around. Uh, that has changed. Uh, the, the science has only gotten stronger. It's the money that is contaminating this problem. And uh, now, it, now that all that has flowed into an overt political machine that is occupying the American government right now. Tom Tolles is the editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post. We're talking about climate denial at Climate One. 
I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to go to our lightning round, which is a series of quick questions and quick answers uh, for our guests today. Uh, this is a word association. I'll mention a noun and ask you to just uh, mention the first thing that pops into your head. Um, starting with Tom Tolles, Rex Tillerson. Um, uh, George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> uh, Mike Mann, the late climate scientist Stephen Schneider. A ray of hope. Uh, Chris Russell, economist Bjorn Lomborg. Denial. Uh, Renee Lertzman, Donald Trump. <laughs> um, narcissist. <laughs> Uh, this is a yes or no, true or false question for Mike Mann. Uh, a primary reason Americans haven't taken more action on climate change is they lack the basic facts about burning fossil fuels. No. Renee Lertzman, true or false, facts change people's minds. False. Tom Tolles, uh, yes or no, many Americans want to revisit high school science. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, Chris Russell, yes or no, talking about science makes the climate conversation unnecessarily complicated and boring. Yes. Mike Mann, yes or no, you have climate deniers in your family. No. Tom Tolles, uh, yes or no, tragedy is hilarious. <laughs> That's a quote from me. <laughs> <laughs> So well, I, I, I ripped it off his blog. I wrote it, yes. <laughs> and, and actually... But you got it from someone uh, else. Renee Lertzman, yes or no, one of the most primitive defenses is villainization. Yes. Also for Renee Lertzman, villainization is going to be the ultimate downfall of the climate movement. Yes. Chris Russell, yes or no, Donald Trump is stepping away from making his businesses bankrupt to bankrupt the country. <laughs> mm, yes. Got that from Andy Borowitz in The New Yorker. Uh, thank you. Let's uh, give our round uh, to these guests at Climate One. Renee Lertzman, I want to ask you about James Inhofe, because sometimes people, you know, facts, you said, don't change people's minds. James Inhofe, the Republican senator from Oklahoma, um, canceled a keynote address a few years ago uh, at the Heartland Institute, an institute that, that denies climate change is happening, um, he dove into a lake, a grand lake in Oklahoma for a routine swim, uh, and there was an algae bloom, and he was deathly sick. Mm. Uh, and his 13-year-old granddaughter didn't want to go into that green stuff. Uh, and uh, speaking to humor, uh, Senator Inhofe said to a local paper that the environment strikes back. Um, so tell us about the power of personal influence, personal experience, and perhaps children getting to deniers as a way of changing their views. Can I just interject sure. very briefly? Um, that uh, algal bloom was a result of the unprecedented heat and drought that Oklahoma was experiencing at the time. So Renee Lertzman, what I'm trying to get at is personal experience, loved ones, changing people's minds mm. uh, that have not otherwise been changed by facts. Right. So. 
Yes, there's, there's enough um, evidence and research that supports the fact that when we have direct experience of issues, that influences our perceptions. But we want to be very careful that we don't go too far in that end of the spectrum. So going back to the point around our psychological challenges around engaging with these issues, we do have imaginations. We do have capacity to engage with our imagination. But having that direct visceral experience can support that, but it's not the full story. So Carrie Norgard's work, and I know Carrie has been on this stage as well, talking about her research um, in Norway, her book Living in Denial, explores how people living in a village where snow was literally not there, um, people were still in profound denial. So even when things are right in front of us, waters are rising, homes in Calgary are being flooded, people can still absolutely be in denial of what is happening. Um, the point that you mentioned around the influence of children is also becoming more recognized as very powerful. So one organization, the Alliance for Climate Education, that I've been working with actually uh, is focusing on supporting young people to have more effective conversations with their parents. We're going to be studying that, doing research with some folks over at Stanford. So we will be able to see how the conversations that young people, especially teens, are having with their parents and how that might introduce some openings. Uh, and this also relates to the point around conversation, that when we're in social interactions with people we trust and care about, that is absolutely where we can start to see openings in, in how we, you know, the fixation on the denial. A lot of people hoping that Ivanka Trump can get to her dad. Chris Russell. Well, no, I was going to say, um, in the smoking, uh, I covered a lot of the smoking wars and the financial influence. But also during that era, there were good studies showing that kids who had learned in school about smoking uh, came home and did have an impact on their parents. Uh, and wisely so, given uh, secondhand smoke, as it turned out to be. So I think this anecdotal approach, it's also used in journalism quite a bit, the anecdotal lead where you tell the story of what has happened to someone, and it can go either way. And perhaps one of the stronger ways <coughs> to get public interest in the issue of the seriousness of the issue is to have more stories coming from places where people are being impacted. And I think one of the surprises, in a way, is the evidence that is happening all around us, as opposed to uh, in our, there'll be more to come, obviously. But uh, I think telling more stories about how it's impacting and then bringing the science in to explain how that might be related or precursor and such has always been an effective way, I think, giving people and it doesn't happen in journalism. Uh, it's always a challenge as a science journalist, figure out how to get the science out in a kind of easy dose and not cough medicine. So I want to look forward because one of the criticisms of, of science and journalism is that it's always doom and gloom. It's all the bad stuff. And people want stories of hope. They want what can I do? And Chris Russell, a lot of this, the journalism around climate is melting glaciers, droughts, bad stuff happening. And is that because uh, good news stories don't get on page one? Is it because they don't have some tension or journalists are predisposed to talk about planes crashing, not planes that land safely, sure. Uh, but where is the, the positive stories? Well, I think the things connecting the dots is 
the energy picture is obviously the bigger uh, story. What can we do, uh, even as that electrician that we're going to keep thinking about, um, you can do something about a problem, regardless of whether you know all of the details. And so most of the surveys that are being done show considerable public support for renewable energy, for uh, actually paying more to get uh, you know, cars that run on more efficient fuel. So I, I think that energy and technology, if it's not exaggerated, provides a kind of counterpoint, and also the speed with which, particularly all around the world, renewable energy is growing, gives people a something to do, because I think it's definitely true. Uh, particularly, you know, we've got to stay away from the stories that the ice is up, the ice is down, and try to have more context in these stories. But I think more coverage and getting the business and energy reporters to also bring in the science and explain how uh, this more efficient car or electric car, I guess, which gets to go across the bridge for free here, how that connects to doing something about the environment and about climate change. Mike Mann? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, that sort of the ice is up, the ice is down. Uh, Andy Revkin refers to that as the whiplash effect. Uh, these seemingly contradictory stories that people hear that causes confusion and doubt and potentially denial. Renee Wurtzman, <laughs> facts are confusing. We, facts haven't changed. This mountain of facts haven't caused us to do the thing that we need to do. Um, can we just put, put uh, science and facts aside and deal with something else? No, absolutely not. But what we really have to do is take a more integrated approach that recognizes that fact and reason and rationality have to be integrated with the emotional reality. Um, I think in the focus on solutions and positive stories, we want to be very careful that that's not actually sufficient. It's sort of like what's called bypassing. When you just focus on the kind of rah-rah, here's the good story, you're not actually addressing the other part of the story and the experience that this is this is a little overwhelming, it's a little scary, this is a little confusing. And I think if we do more experimentation in our communications, where we, and this is a place of innovation, we're all being kind of forced to do things differently right now, to, to experiment with addressing the reality and the facts and the solutions, but, but bring in a little bit of that emotional intelligence, bring in a little bit of that you know, this is kind of hard or whatever that is, and then move into and look what's happening now. And I think we'll see a much greater level of receptivity and engagement in the issues if we take that more um, kind of an integrated angle. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Today, we're talking about ways to engage others in the conversation about climate change. Our guests are editorial cartoonist Tom Tolles, science writer Christine Russell, psychologist Renee Lertzman, and Michael Mann, professor of meteorology at Penn State University. Here's Greg Dalton. Uh, we did a poll on Twitter. We had 850 votes, and we asked the question, what do you think about human-caused climate change? 61% said it's real and will impact me. 11% said it's real and won't impact me. 
12% said it's natural, and 16% uh, said it's a hoax. So I want to get to this, it's real or won't impact me, because um, Renee Lertzman, that's a form of climate denial light. It's, we, we're talking here about denial, which is it's not happening, and we hear about that, but there's another thing, which is it's happening, but it's going to hurt people far away, or polar bears, or people on Pacific Islands. It's not going to affect me on a hill uh, somewhere where I'll be safe from sea level rise. Right. I call this the kinder, gentler climate change denial. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Mike's written about the kind of these variations as well. So there's some nice research out there around um, these variations. Um, you can think of it as rationalization, um, distantiation, where you're actually putting space or distance between yourself and the issue. These are all very well-known, documented strategies that we engage in that, as you say, are not cut-and-dry denial. There's also disavowal, where you're you're not denying something exists, but you're choosing to not actually live in that awareness. You're choosing to go on business as usual. It's not the same as saying it doesn't exist. So these, again, are sort of well-known, well-crafted strategies. And, and as Kari Norgard has written about in Mike and in, in, in your book, that we need one another to actually corroborate, to make it real. So it's not just me as an individual going around having this thought. I need people in my life, and I need social interactions who can mirror and reflect that back. I want to ask uh, Tom Tolles about one of his cartoons uh, It's in the book, uh, Madhouse Effect in the Washington Post. It's a villain in court uh, testifying. It's this big, ugly monster, and he's in court. And he says, maybe that storm was one of mine. Maybe it wasn't. You can't prove a thing, so you'll just have to let me go. Yeah, I mean, the... the one of the games, there have been many games played in the debate over climate change, and one of the games that the <coughs> denial community has played is they take a, a fact from the science side that you cannot specifically attribute any one event to climate change. It could have been a naturally, it could have happened anyway which is true, and it's just, a, it's just a, a cynical game of tangle-footing your opposition with their own honesty. And so they, they always deploy that against the news media in particular, any, any, any linkage whatsoever. And I've, I've dealt with this in my cartoons because the cartoonists, I'm trying to convey visually and viscerally what climate change will be like and you see a, a freak storm, a catastrophic flood, a fire, you want to take all those visuals and, and deploy those and say, okay, maybe even if this one wasn't connected to, can't be proven to be connected to climate change data, this is what the future is going to be like. But it's, you have to do that, that maneuver, that even if, then also kind of thing, which is, um, well, it's a little, it, 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 it's, a, it's a trickier argument to make. So the cartoon was directing, directed at, at explaining the specific tactic of trying to split those two things apart. I just, I, before the, the conversation gets away from this, and I know I'm st out, out, stepping outside the question you've asked, um, I, think, I think Renee has gotten the psychology of this exactly right. Um, I just want to push back on that a little bit, which I did already once, and I'm going to repeat it a little bit. The psychology is very real. It's not simply a psychological problem. 
you take away the industry funding on the specific targeted politically directed action that this money is being used for, the psychology of the politics would be better. Wouldn't necessarily be fundamentally different, but it would be the politics would look a lot different. And a lot of the progress that we've been making, both in terms of public education, both in terms of international policy, national policy under the Obama administration, we have in this last election crossed over into an extraordinarily hazardous moment where all the gains are at risk. I don't think they're lost, but politically this is an extraordinarily hazardous time that I don't think we've even yet realized. This is a dangerous time <coughs> for climate and a whole lot of other things too, but we are out of screwing around time. There's no time left. And I, you know, I, I, it sounds like I'm arguing with Renee, I'm not. She's right, you've got to solve the psychological problem to solve the political problem, but the political problem has just leapt way ahead of the psychology here, and we are now in a horrible place. And I don't want anybody to leave here to think that Oh, this is just an interesting conversation that we've had, a lot of good thoughts. Uh, this is genuinely, permanently dangerous, not just to the planet, not just to the climate, but all our politics, our government institutions, our economy, they're all floating like, like an like a institution on thin ice that's melting from under us. You can see what what refugees do to politics in Europe, how it can help undermine all the democratic institutions. These are not just abstract questions, and they're not in the future anymore. We are right up against it now, and if you don't walk away with anything else from that, just remember that we are right at the edge of the precipice right now, and we're teetering. <laughs> Tom, to Tom Tolles is the editorial cartoonist <coughs> from the Washington Post. We'll have Christine Russell quickly, and then we'll go to audience questions. I, I also just oh, want to respond. Sure, to okay. Later. Chris Russell first, event. I was just going to say that uh, going forward, uh, as was said earlier, a lot of this denial has come out of the shadows where you have headlines saying the nominee for the EPA is a climate denier. So I think one of the really important things... Uh, going forward is the fact that I think the news media is going to toughen up in terms of following the history and digging down to hear more about their history, where their funding came from, and more investigative reporting on that front. The follow the money, follow the history, I think will be being done on all fronts, not just by journalists, but I think there's going to be uh, an opportunity to make it very public because the announcements are very public. And so I think people will have a better idea of who these candidates are. And certainly we're getting mixed signals from Donald Trump, but the nominees say his intention. So. Uh, Renee Lurzman, uh Tom Tolles painted a very dark picture. What do people do with that fear? That, that's sort of a dark, is that a, a mobilizing place? 
people, well, people know that, but they don't know what to do with it or go where to go with it. Exactly. I mean, it's a terrifying, paralyzing, potentially paralyzing place. Trauma does tend to fight, flight, or freeze us. Um, I just want to clarify that I'm, I'm in complete agreement with your prognosis and your position. Um, where I'm coming from, I recognize the enormous machinery that's you know, in motion here. What I think we have to really attend to urgently is to find ways for, to support one another in resisting that, um, you know, the, the mechanisms that you've described so uh, acutely, right? So, so I just want to make that very clear. I'm not at all saying there is not a huge, massive, scary political context we're in, but unless we actually bring in some psychological insight into how we can support ourselves and one another in moving through the paralysis and through the denial, we are really going to be in, I mean, even more danger. People don't know what to do about it. We're talking about uh, climate denial at Climate One. You just heard Renee Lertzman, an author and strategist with a psychological background. Uh, Michael Mann is a, partner, is a professor of meteorology at Penn State University. Christine Russell is a veteran science journalist and fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and Tom Tolles, the Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post. Uh, let's go to questions. We'll take two at a time. Yes, first question, please. Willful blindness is a legal theory that's employed in the drug industry. Do you all see any connection where it could be used in this, this fight against climate change? Thank you. Willful blindness, and we'll take the second question. Um, what kind of climate event will finally wake us up so that we do not squander any more time because we have no time left to squander. Thank you. Willful blindness, Mike Mann. Oh, well, uh, I, I think that argument has been made. I think uh, that was used uh, against the tobacco industry in the uh, legislation uh, in the court case that was brought by the state's attorneys general, uh, that they knowingly hid information of the adverse, about the adverse uh, impact of their product. The same argument today is being made actually by the same lead attorney uh, from the tobacco uh, wars is now making the, arg the argument that ExxonMobil, for example, may have engaged in exactly the same behavior. Uh, second question is, uh, what event will finally mobilize? We saw Superstorm Sandy, so Hurricane Katrina, uh, all these incremental things. What's going what's gonna to tip the balance? We'd like to take that one. I'll, I'll, Tom Tolson. I'll take a... F I, uh, we've had massive fires. We've had uh, flooding from tornadoes. We've had, I mean, from hurricanes. We've had tornadoes. We've had uh, flooding from just freak rainstorms. Uh, Michael, on the radio program this morning, mentioned that for, for ordinary pollution, when the Cuyahoga River caught fire, that was the flood, I mean, that was the event that uh, triggered the, the public understanding of the issue. I have my own theory is fires weren't enough, flooding wasn't enough, hurricanes, tornadoes weren't enough. The, 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 the environmental event, event that's going to change uh, the, the understanding of this issue is when people get, come out of their houses and march on Washington and march on fossil fuel companies. It's going to be a tidal weight of human beings. That's what it takes right now. Everybody's going to have to get out of their chairs and do something. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. August 2008, Scientific American magazine stated that the uh, effect of global warming can be controlled. Then it goes on to state, if you overlay 
uncontrolled population rise, there is no hope. You have not at all addressed that. Why not? Thank you. Uh, Mike Mann, environmentalists, climate people don't like to talk about population. Yeah, that's, um, there's an identity that we uh, often refer to uh, when we talk about carbon emissions. It's called the Kaya identity. Uh, Bill Gates, a couple years ago, took credit for it, um, having claimed to uh, uh, discover it himself, but it's actually been around for more than a decade. And it's, it's a simple sort of mathematical expression that tells us how much carbon builds up um, in the atmosphere. Uh, well, it's a product of how many people there are burning carbon. It's a product of how we are getting our energy. And there are a number of terms, but the first term in the Chi identity is population. So all other things being equal, more people on the face of the planet using more energy, energy that is gained from the burning of carbon are going to produce more carbon emissions. Now, where that becomes uh, problematic is that uh, not all people are equal when it comes to carbon emissions. And for example, uh, in China, um, China has the largest aggregate carbon emissions of any country on the planet, but their per capita emissions are still substantially lower than ours. Now the worry is as China industrializes their economy further, as India industrializes their economy, as the rest of the world leads a more Western style lifestyle, and their carbon footprints start to increase, that's really the problem. That, that's the problem we face. It isn't so much right now how many people there are, it's how many people who are burning carbon to get energy. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. To echo Renee's phrase, it's incredibly difficult to come to terms with the problem of anthropogenic climate change. My difficulty is after studying the problem and seeing the mounting dramatic effects, hope becomes harder to rationally sustain to prevent permanent cataclysmic changes. Do you think that one can learn too much about the problem that then paralyzes us to try to work towards solutions? Renee Lertzman, is it possible to know too much that you become paralyzed? That's a really powerful question to ask. Um, and my response is no, but we have to be exceptionally mindful of the context in which we're learning and taking in the information. So when we're on our own and we're isolated and we're dealing with all of this, of course it's overwhelming and of course it is paralyzing potentially. But when we look at the context of being with others and being able to process what we're learning, things rapidly change. We actually, as humans, have incredible capacity to become very creative and ingenuous, you know, have ingenuity, but we need to think about the context in which we're coming to terms with the issues. We have to end it there. We've been talking about climate denial and the hope for uh, addressing climate change with Tom Tolles, editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post. Christine Russell is a veteran science journalist and a fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Michael Mann is a professor at Penn State University and author with Tom Tolles of The Madhouse Effect, how, I forget the subtitle, but how climate change is messing up everything. <laughs> denial's changes, uh, climate denial is messing up everything. And Renee Lertzman, who's a, a psychologist and climate strategist. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to invite you to join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on podcasts and online. Thank you all for being part of this conversation today. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. 
Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.